there's so much sex in this movie and so much drugs. I mean, I, I and I'm, rock and roll. Tumblr.com. I'm your host, uh, Robert Beck. I'm a writer for SpeakersAndScreens.com, and right next to me is TJ Dwayne, also a Hello, writer. Everybody. Also a Hello. writer for SpeakersAndScreens.com. TJ, you're not allowed to talk. Only I am. Sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> today we got quite a few, uh, quite a few films for y'all today. We're gonna, you know. Going to Wolf of Wall Street, Inside Lewin Davis, um, a little bit of The Hobbit, Anchorman, a bunch of other nice, nice good stuff. But before that, we're going to talk about, well, TJ's going to tell you a little bit about some shit that he wrote for the blog recently, because that's what we're going to talk about first. Yes, we, um, over the past month, uh, I've written since two our last podcast. Since our last podcast. Yeah. That's true, it's been a little over a month. Uh, since our last one, but this would be our December one, even though it probably will not be out until. No, no, no. Early well, well, well uh, I can edit the dialogue pretty quick, and I can whip Kyle right. into shape and make him do, uh, and, and, and and you know, and make him edit the picture together and all that shit quickly. This will be out around New Year's, probably. Let Let's hope for that. Let's hope for that. Yes. Um. But um. But I've written two essays, and another one will be done by the next, in the next couple of days, probably before this podcast comes out. But I'll talk about the first two, and then the third will segue uh, into our first film discussion. Uh, um, yes, I agree. Um, it was great. <laughs> um, the, the first essay that I wrote over this last month and a half or so was over Robert Altman's Nashville, which kind of coincided with the Criterion Blu-ray release, which I bought during the 50% Barnes & Noble sale they have every November um, for Criterion releases. And it was well worth it because it's one of my favorite Altman movies, one of my favorite 70s movies, and um, the, that era is my favorite era in Hollywood uh, filmmaking is like the 1970s. The new, Holly, the new Hollywood stuff, right? A- absolutely. Early Scorsese, Coppola, Altman, Malick, like Malick. just that whole... E- yeah, that whole era is really what I'm interested in. Uh, I had a nice marathon over the, the, the summer with a lot of those films. But uh, Nashville has a special special place in my heart, mostly because it's the film where I finally got Robert Altman, because it's a little hard initially getting, to, in, getting into his movies with the sort of overlapping dialogue, the sort of chaos. And like, where is the central 
like idea of this movie. What is this movie trying to communicate? And while I am entertained, what is the point of this movie? And that was the movie where I figured it out. And a lot of it goes to that final scene. My essay is a kind of an analysis of the final scene of Nashville and how that kind of just draws everything together. It kind of makes sense through the chaos and is why I think that's one of the best movies of the 70s. Um, the, another essay, which I just published yesterday for us on the 27th of December, was sort of um, going in deep with what, one of my favorite movies of the year, if not my favorite movie of the year, which is Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave, and sort of looking at the, the idea of how slavery is, this, is a mechanical system that everyone is a part of making it work including people like Solomon, who is in part, in ways, guilty of help, helping continue the system. And he realizes that, and that's part of his journey, is, to, is a sort of way for him to realize that he needs to do something about it, which, he, at, you know, historically, Solomon Northup became an abolitionist after his hellacious 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one I'm writing now, is a comparison movie, or sorry, a comparison essay between Martin Scorsese's *The Wolf of Wall Street* and Mike Nichols' *The Graduate*, which is one of the movies that sort of kicked off New Hollywood. But the, sort of the usage of music and the, and the sort of scene of looking into the face of a character, and so to sort of to take meaning out of these sort of ambiguous images, and mostly the connection is the use of the Lemonheads cover of Mrs. Robinson, which was written for The Graduate, which is during a very important scene of The Wolf of Wall Street. My essay will have a lot of spoilers, so watch yeah. the movie first. <laughs> yeah. And, and should, we'll do our best not to spoil anything today. <laughs> and it should still be in really wide release. Um, so, you know, you guys just see it. And speaking of which, the first movie we're going to be talking about is The Wolf of Wall Street. I still have no clue what the point of that was. <laughs> I don't I mean, either. I, I mean, that's a recurring thing in the movie. I mean, there's one scene where Leo DiCaprio is making this big, like, uh, this big speech to his company, and I don't know, it just, everyone starts doing it, and I'm just like, oh. All right, like, I don't even know what the hell that what the hell that even meant. In the closing credits, there's like a techno remix. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I noticed that. Okay, well, but Wolf of Wall Street is the latest from, uh, Mar- uh, legendary director Martin Scorsese. If you don't know who this, if you don't know who he is, get out of the hole you're living in and go watch Goodfellas, go watch Raging Bull, Main Street's Taxi Driver, uh, everything. It's kind that's, of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of. And I think this might be his best movie since The Departed, if not since maybe Gangs of New York, honestly. Like, I know it's a little bit blaspheme, blasphemous to say, um, but, I, but I really think this I really think this is, he hit it out of the park with this one. Um, it's the story, it's the real life story. I didn't know it was a true story going into it. I uh, Somehow I just assumed it was fiction. But, um... It takes place mostly mostly in the eighties, goes into the nineties a little bit. Although, it 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 is relevant to today, considering how how screwed over 
a lot of these Wall Street bankers kind of made our economy. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it affects how we live today. It's a story of an ambitious um, wannabe Wall Street broker uh, named Jordan Belfort, played, played by Leo DiCaprio, who, who gets into, you know, a, after starting at a big firm that that collapsed pretty quickly into pretty quickly into into his working there uh, because of the economic downfall in 1987 he started working in penny stocks which is basically extremely small companies that really won't make any money but desperate people buy a bunch of them in hopes that they would go up but they almost never do and he he has the idea of uh, of take of taking that idea and targeting the wealthiest people with it, and he starts a big firm and and he becomes this superstar. It, everything takes off and three hours of debauchery and hedonism ensue. If you thought mm-hmm. that Spring Breakers had the most the most hedonism of any movie in 2013, well, it still might, but Wolf of <laughs> Wall Street has. Is is pretty nice, pretty nice in competition with that. It at least has twice the running time, pretty much. Oh, yeah, that too. There's so much sex in this movie and so much drugs. I mean, I and rock and roll. Yeah, actually, (laughs) uh, I'm willing to guess the only way that this thing narrowly escaped an NC-17 rating is because Martin Scorsese is kind of a big deal, like we said. Oh yeah, I think that's totally it. Like. He, I know. I know they submitted the movie, and the MPAA was like, "You're gonna have to cut some." He goes, "All right, just, just tell me what to cut, and I will." All right, shorten this scene by a couple minutes, shorten this by a couple seconds, get rid of this shot. He just did what they said, and he still was left with a borderline NC-17 movie. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this is along with, like I said, Spring Breakers. This might be the hardest R of all the R-rated movies in the year. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. But um. <sighs> But even though even though it could seem really gratuitous to some people, I think that it well, for one thing, uh, I kind I had fun watching it. I was never bored mm-hmm. that the three hour running time, even though I feel like one of the flaws of the movie is it, it, it could have been a little shorter. I mean, it overstays its welcome ever so slightly. Um, but I by the end by the end of it, I, I don't feel like this movie is reveling in its debauchery like, some people would say that it is. I think it has actually has a very firm hammer statement to make about uh, about excess and about how extreme wealth like this is corrupting. And ultimately, it has a statement about about these Wall Street brokers. And apparently, there were some screenings of this film with Wall Street broker with, with some serious like Wall Street people. Mm-hmm. They, they were cheering during all of the most fucked up moments of it. Yep. And like, yeah, that makes sense to me. The also at the Academy screening for the you know the Academy people who vote for the Oscars. Yeah. Uh, and uh, someone went up to Martin Scorsese afterwards and said, "Shame on you, Marty." And I guess most people left before the Q and A because they just didn't bother. <laughs> it's not. I wouldn't doubt if the Wolf of. I mean, the Wolf of Wall Street might get nominated for Oscars. Not that it matters. It might get a Best Picture, maybe director, screenplay, maybe even Leo. But I doubt it. I doubt it would win anything just because of how. No, yeah, it is not winning a single award. I guarantee that. But it might get nominated, which would be nice. Or this might be Scorsese's Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> I, st- I still. I still. I still haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut. So. 
a lot of people hate still, it, but I still, I watch it I still, still got to work my way through. Well, Scorsese loved Eyes Wide Shot. Let's just, oh, yeah. let's, just be, let's just be honest with that. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. It was one of his top ten films of that year, and good choice because it's one of mine. Or, sorry, that decade. That decade. Um, he was on the... He was on the Siskel and Ebert show after Siskel passed. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he absolutely loved that movie, and I'm totally with Marty on that. Like well, once I again, I, have, I haven't seen that one. I'm still working my way through Kubrick's uh, filmography in that regard. They, um, The thing about The Wolf of Wall Street and the interpretation that it revels too much in the, you know, in the debauchery and the, in, in the bacchanal of everything... I think that it, well, well, yes, I would say that ultimately. <laughs> but I think, but I think the movie is reveling it for a purpose, not a yeah, not like Scorsese is totally condoning these acts. No, what's happening is that they're showing. Look how seductive. You know, you want a part of this, America. You've always <laughs> wanted a part of this, and you know what? At, you know, this isn't a spoiler. The last shot is looking right into our faces, <laughs> telling us that you want this shit. You want the, all the color shorts. You want the Tommy Hill figure. You want a yacht. I'm mixing my movies, but that's okay. You want a <laughs> yacht. You want to drive a helicopter. You want to try all of these drugs. America, you've always wanted all of these. And this is what you get. Yeah, like, the, yeah. there's been some really interesting movies this year about the American dream. Uh, Spring mm-hmm. Breakers being kind of one of them. And this is another... That is another one in that category, probably even more so. And, and of course, even though I haven't seen it, and you said it was atrocious, The Great Gatsby. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, the great that you mentioned that because this is so the anti-Great Gatsby. Because well, the point of the Great Gatsby novel is to be a critique of the great excess of the Roaring Twenties. What mm-hmm. Baz Luhrmann did is just make all that excess look really glitzy and awesome and just made it, you know, it, it said, instead of being a movie about excess, it just became that. Yeah. Um, the Wolf of Wall Street, by example, is definitely a critique of the institutions that it depicts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean no question. You can't see this movie and you can't critique this movie and – at least not see glimpses of that. Are you on Quaaludes right now? Is that an inside joke from the movie? Yeah. Okay. It look. It was three hours, bro. I don't remember every. I don't remember every joke in it. No, just the you know the twenty minutes of Leo and Jonah Hill. Oh, by, oh, oh! That was the drug. That was the drug. Yeah, Quaaludes or the specific one that they took the lemons. Okay. Th- there's. <clears throat> There is a sequence in this movie that I, I can't give away, but it involve, involves the drug that he talked about that, for one thing, probably features, like, the best piece of physical comedy I've seen in, in years. He, in years. <laughs> I mean, the con- contortions that Leo goes through, I mean, it, it's amazing, and it's also just may, maybe the funniest scene of the year. And I'm not even counting everything that was in The, the World's End, which I thought was hilarious. And this is the end, too, which is hilarious. And this is the end. But, oh, oh, my God. And it's also worth noting this is probably the funniest movie that Scorsese has ever made. I need to go back and watch some of his comedies, though. Like, I know they have, like, they have tragic aspects, sort of like this movie, but, like, the king of comedy. The king of comedy. Um, but I, I, I saw the king of comedy recently. I would argue that I would argue that this is 
way funnier than the King of Comedy. Interesting. I need to yeah. see it. It's one of my blind spots. Yeah, but the, but the thing is with the with how over the top this movie is. If you want to tell the story and you want to really make the point that this movie's trying to make, you need to exaggerate these characters as much as possible and exaggerate these situations. Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, uh, but before I move on to the performances, because I think we need to mention that before we before we end. Again, with the whole the movie is not taking a stance against Jordan Belfort. You know, there are some scenes towards the end of the movie that are horrifying and sick. Like, you know, involving children. Yeah. And involving... Domestic battery. Exactly. And I don't understand how anyone could look up to that. Like, I don't understand how that scene doesn't have a point of view. And how it kind of unravels everything to show how pathetic the character is. He's totally yeah. charming, totally charismatic, and you, and, everyone... Yeah. He, he talks to, listens to him, and does everything he says. But you know what? Everyone does that to a lot of terrible people. Terrible people have always been charismatic. It's one reason why they're so dangerous. And the thing is, one of the important things that Scorsese does in films like Mean Streets or films like Goodfellas about the mafia and about uh, and about gangster lifestyle is he looks he looks directly into these characters and says these people are scum. And he and he doesn't. Not even in a condescending way, just that's what they are. And he doesn't make apologies for that at, at any point. And he does the same exact thing for Wall Street. I mean, if anything, Wall Street is the biggest gang in the history of America. Mm -hmm. the, they're the biggest mafia in the history of, the uni of, the mo uh, of America because they've robbed us blind for years and years and it – collapsed our economy multiple times so i think i think scorsese is making once again a hammer statement about the disparity between you know the rich and the poor and how how ultimately messed up that is in america i think he's absolutely making a statement about it and he's not glorifying these people for a second the only thing he's glorifying is our desire to still be them and how we enable it well, that's a, yeah. That's also that's also yeah. a really concrete statement he's making with this movie. That, that's why I say that this might be his most important movie in in, in at least ten years. I think. I mean, the, the, oh yeah. I mean, I, I mean, The Departed is great, but is there? You know, it, it doesn't really make a societal statement the way this the way I think this movie does. And I, I yeah. need this movie to like percolate more with me, but I mean, it could be yeah. his best, most important movie since nineteen ninety even yeah possibly um, um back back to goodfellas even though i agree that the departed is is great film. still great yeah, yeah. i just rewatched it it's so good but yeah wolf of wall street uh you know like i said my only my only real criticism is that it does uh, sorry i burped again it does kind of wear out its welcome uh, mm, again it fuck i'm gonna edit that shit out uh, <clears throat> It does wear out its welcome, like, ever so slightly, I think, by the end of it. It did get to a point where, like, okay, where are you going with this? Like, just mm -hmm. in the last 10, 20 minutes or so. But, the... like, there are a few points where you think it's going to end, but then it just kind of continues and goes into other stuff. And, th and then there's this, almost like a, there's like a scene in a boat that's straight out of the fucking Poseidon <laughs> adventure that came out of nowhere. I mean, I have no, I mean, I have no clue if that actually <laughs> happened. Um, if, if it did, then okay. But if it didn't, I was like, what? I, I mean, shit that... you not. I saw a seagull fly right into the engine. 
Oh my! Oh my God! That was so, <laughs> that. That might be a spoiler, but oh yeah. No, the, we'll, the, they will stay get, vague they, with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, oh, that was insane. Yeah, um, the, the performances and, and the narration, the sort of segue bit for our last probably aspect to talk about with this film, and you're totally right, I think, about the length. I think that that could be a criticism. It's still one of my favorite movies of the year, but it's not totally. perfect. The narration totally works. The breaking of the fourth wall, Leo talking directly to us, in a way seducing us, but he's not the only great performance, so he's arguably the best. I think the entire supporting cast in this movie is just hilarious. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I, I, everyone, I, everyone is great. I loved how how many directors as as actors were in this movie. Um, Spike Jones. I didn't catch. I, I didn't catch Spike Jones. I knew he was in it, but I didn't catch who he was. He had the terrible mustache. Uh, whenever the he's the main guy at the penny stock place, and he's like, "Man, I'd." Oh my god, that right was now. him! Oh my yeah. shit! Now I remember. And, John Favreau. Uh, John Trevor and Rob Reiner as his dad, who is hysterical. Yes, their conversation about uh, pubic hair uh, was one of my favorite conversations <laughs> of the year. Yeah. I don't mind a, it. <laughs> a lot of sex in this movie and a lot of sexual dialogue, too. Yes. And then, of course, um, it, it wouldn't be a conversation about the supporting cast if we didn't bring up all his friends. Jo- and Jonah especially Hill. Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. This, might, this might be Jonah Hill's best performance. I, I think without a question, it's my favorite at least. I mean, I liked him in Moneyball. I liked him in This <clears> Is The End. I think he had some of the funniest parts of This Is The End this year. Yeah. And of course, I mean, he's he's always the best part of bad movies. Um, <laughs> uh, ex- the movie Accepted, one of his first movies, he's the funniest part of that movie. All right. Uh, I was going to say, I also think this is Leo DiCaprio's best performance ever, too. Um, I, I think it nearly... It has, I think has to be it, up there. I think I think it beats out Cal like yeah, last year when I saw him as Calvin Candy in Django Unchained. I was like, all right, this is it. This is where I like I always thought he was a fine actor, but I never I never thought that he rose above. I never necessarily thought that he rose above what he did in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and that was when he was nine or yeah. at, at least early teens. So <clears throat> and then he mastered the he mastered the brooding hero. In the Departed and Shutter Island and Inception, which I like him in that role. He's good with that, but then you start taking too many roles that were similar. Yeah, but with Calvin Candy in this, he takes on really dark personas, but makes them really loud and really rambunctious and kind of still kind of still charismatic, but just yeah. I, I mean, like uh, the the two the couple scenes where he has to like basically give rioting speeches to his office. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just electrifying. And yes. how he's unafraid to go in, to, to go to the dark places that this character goes. And, you know, once again, the lemons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but he, he, no, and, and can't, can't you imagine a decent man being in the audience that day and like totally getting swept up into it? Like, it's yeah. just sort of like mob mentality. You, I mean, yeah. not, not only literally the mob, but a mob. Like it's that sort of like you get swept up in this shit, and it's just it's it's disturbing as much as it is electrifying. I think we're both in agreement. Wolf of Wall Street, something you you gotta see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's if it's if you don't want to see it in a theater for three hours, then at least see it on DVD or something. But, but it if, would totally be worth seeing in the theater. It's totally worth seeing in the theater. Just you should just go see it because it it is great. Moving on to what I think is probably both of our favorite movies that we're talking about this week. Um, 
In- yes. Inside Lewin Davis, the new movie from the Coen Brothers. Since I, since I talked about uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, you can talk about this one. Oh, an- another. Well, this is a pair of canonical filmmakers who have made plenty of great movies: Fargo, No Country for Old Men, Barton Fink, A Serious Manner. Those are some of my favorites. Of course, The Big Lebowski is one of their comic masterpieces with Raising Arizona and films like that. They've had a long, well, longish career thus far, and they <clears throat> almost always bring it. Yeah. Um, even even their lukewarm movies are still elevated past, you know, the typical crap you get with the Hollywood picture. Well, intoler- intolerable cruelty. <laughs> intolerable cruelty and uh, the lady, lady killers, killers are held up as their worst movies, but I have thankfully never watched them. So I I've seen I've seen some of Intolerable Cruelty on TV. Just yeah, I don't you don't need to watch it. <laughs> that's their dark period. Um, <laughs> but but the Coen Brothers have this sense of humor that is totally present within this film. That's very dark, odd, very dark, very torturous to the characters within the films themselves. But they yeah. always seem to still contain the semblance of truth and what they're saying is still true to life where we don't judge them for putting their characters through the ringer. Instead, we look at it and we notice that people put themselves through the ringer all the time. And with their last two great movies, A Serious Man and this film, and you could also argue No Country. Actually, you could probably argue this for most of their films. The characters who are the most tortured in those movies, the protagonists, tend to cause a lot of their own grief. Yeah. It's uh, in this one we have Oscar Isaac playing the title character Lewin Davis, who is a folk singer who plays in Greenwich Village, who is poor. He is dirt poor. He is homeless. He doesn't have a coat for the winter, and he's crashing on people's couches. And it's sort of his like adventures until he comes to a, a decision by the end of the film. And it should be noted that this takes place right before the huge folk music scene in Greenwich Village. Well, like, it, kind of, it kind of takes place within that, like when that was kind of an underground thing. But yes, I, knew, I think but, it was still, I think it was very much a scene in this movie. It but was the before, dam hadn't burst <clears throat> yet. Well, yeah, it was before. Yeah, it was before people like Bob Dylan uh, went went big. Um, yeah. Bear that in mind when you're seeing this movie. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think what I think it's specifically 1961, isn't it? Yes, it is. All right. So yeah, it, it's at the beginning of the scene, and, and you're right; it's totally there. It's underground, but even then, like the gas lamp or the is it the gas light? I'm trying to remember um, the name. Um, I think it's the gas light. Yeah, like something the, like that. They can't get a decent crowd most nights, so it still has this like air where. Most of these musicians are going to fail, even if they have sem- a semblance of talent. And I think we could argue, while Lewin Davis is not a, a like Mozart, or he's, he's not even Bob Dylan, but he has talent and he has the stuff. He just doesn't have the personality to really be able to work with others. It seems like he, he's trying to live by this artist code, and that continuously sort of bites him in the butt. But the film even in its saddest, most melancholy moments, still has these hilarious sequences, not least of which involve a cat. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I saw this on Friday the 20th, and on Sunday the 22nd, um, uh, my family cat, which we had for almost three years, um, uh, passed away. So 
I'm kind of glad I saw this before that, but mm-hmm. that is kind of uh, an interesting thing. And, and, and like, I'm not asking for any pity about that. I'm just, uh, I just kind of thought it was interesting. But yeah, I think this is a really, I think this is great. I think this is one of my fa- one of my favorite Cohen's Cohen movies, at least since uh, No Country for Old Men, if not since before that. It's very much in the tradition of movies of their uh, movies like. Barton Fink or, uh, or or Serious Man or the Man Who Wasn't There, where the universe is random and doesn't really care about you, and uh, obviously some of some of Oscar, uh, some of Lewin Davis's problems arise from him, but a lot of it still arises from the universe is totally random and doesn't care about you. I mean, uh-huh. there's the key scene in the movie is where he's basically giving the performance of his lifetime for for this oh, great yeah. thing and it seems super inspirational. I don't want to give away the exact response, but it's totally fits in the wheelhouse of kind of the cynical brand of humor that the Cohen brothers kind of place on their characters and I think this movie does a really interesting job of like there's a couple other movies that we're going to talk about today that are about this, but it's very much about like stasis, like uh, and, and the movie works in a really circular fashion. Mm-hmm. It, it really, sense. when you see it, it, it ends kind of where it begins. And like Lewin Davis is, he's not even going down the drain; he's circling around it. And the movie sets up like points where, oh, it sets up redemptive moments. Like the oh, there could be this redemptive moment, or no, now he's finally going to either make it, or he's finally going to reenlist in the army. And then the movie just goes, nah. Now nah, we'll put him right back to where he was before. And mm-hmm. I kind of, I mean, some people have accused the Coen brothers of, you know, playing God in a really like cynical way and like, you know, kind of doing what I think directors like Todd Salons kind of does and like putting his characters as ants and just holding like a microscope against them with the sun and watching them squirm. I really don't think they do that. I think it's an exploration of stasis more than anything else. I think that the whole God, like religion, does kind of play into a lot of their uh, their films. Though I, I read a really good um, well, yeah, article. Well, well, yeah, a Serious Man is a greatly it, is, is an extremely Jewish movie. Yes, and uh, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou has a lot of Baptist and Christian uh, symbolism. Yeah, there's and basic, a lot of Catholic, and basically Catholic, the more, sorry and uh, and there's a lot of uh, Catholic symbolism throughout yeah. all their films as well. Yeah, and basically the moral of No Country for Old Men is that there is no God. Yeah. So, I, I mean, and these all play into it. And in here we have John – I read a really good article. I wish I had the name of it so I could just tell people to go read it because it, I'm going to butcher it. But it's sort yeah. of about how the whole – the center of the film is the is the Santeria curse that John Goodman's character puts on Lewin Davis – is that how he is such a piece of crap to other people, even though he's being treated like garbage, of course. Yeah. He, he's getting insulted, and then he stands up for himself, but the sort of how his prickliness is the thing that is always going to be his downfall. His Achilles heel is his own inability to sort of suck it up in a way, where he always has to, whether he's intoxicated or completely sober, always has to be a prickle pants. <laughs> John Goodman is hilarious in this, by the way. 
Yes, he is. He, he is great. Um, he, he, uh, his his section might actually his section is part of the darkest section of the film, but it might be my favorite too. And um, yeah, it's has, the one that most people want to cut. Most of the detractors from this film want to cut, which would totally ruin the balance of the movie, in my opinion. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I mean the whole purpose of that, which is not something I want to give away, but the whole purpose of that is could be seen as pointless to some people, but it's totally not. Mm-mm. I mean, it's it's hard to talk. It's hard to talk about. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to talk about that without spoiling it. Um, but I also want to mention this is this is the first thing I've this is the first thing I've liked Carrie Mulligan in since um, uh, in education because ever since then she's just been I don't know kind of a big vat of nothing to me. Mm-hmm. And in here, like I don't know if this is her niche or whatever, but she's playing someone who is angry and bitter and she's it's just so much fun to watch her yell at him <laughs> a lot of her characters sort of have that uh, before this one sort of had that like uh lethargy to them but yeah. but I, I did like her in drive and especially shane i think she's better in that film. Mm. but for the most part i can see what you're saying I, I do like her more as the firecracker in this movie condom on condom <laughs> rapid in electrical tape <laughs> um that's in the trailer i don't feel bad for giving that line away oh it was oh yeah I must not oh have it was in, it was in the it was in the red band trailer the first one they released around can okay i i i didn't even know there was a red band trailer so i yeah it was weird it was like <laughs> maybe it's because they, they weren't like advertising for the the film yet as a whole because it's last spring because this movie has been around been going from festival to festival yeah it's, yeah it's been around since may and it, it won the it won the second the second the second prize like the runner-up prize at at Cannes or yes. something like that the grand, yeah the grand prix, grand prix. At, after blue is warmest color which won the palm door yeah and so uh, a lot of people, I mean, the Coens have a weird relationship with the Cannes Film Festival. They're the reason why if you win the Palm d'Or, you cannot win another award because Barton yeah, Fink. Yeah, because Barton Fink won <laughs> Best Director, Best Actor, and Best, uh, you know, the, the Top Picture Award, and people were angry about that. And and then um, later on, whenever um, uh, whenever No Country for Old Men came out, there, uh, the, the judge uh, and the jury was just like, you know, it's going to win a bunch of other awards. Let's not give it anything here because we want to like award smaller movies, which totally makes sense. Well, <laughs> but it, four months, three weeks, and two days won the big award that time, and I prefer that movie, so I'm kind of okay with that. Oh, yeah. It, it is held up as a great movie. I need to still see it. Is, is, is that the Romanian movie? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's Romanian. Yeah. And, I need and, to see uh, that and Beyond the Hills both. I saw yeah, we'll, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about Beyond the Hills next time. We'll, okay. Next podcast, we'll see. We'll see that if if we do the best of lists in the next podcast, which I think will end up happening. Um, but yeah, Inside Lewin Davis, it's great. See it. It'll stick with you. Like that's the reason why I think this movie's great is that it sticks in your head. You you, you think about it, and part of it is because of the music. The soundtrack is pleasant listening. Oh my god, the soundtrack is so great. Yeah, it, it's. I thought Francis Ha was going to take the soundtrack of the year in a walk. But I think that this is my favorite non-score yeah. soundtrack of the year. Yeah, the soundtrack made me appreciate Marcus Mumford, and that is a gigantic <laughs> accomplishment. Because I don't I, know whether I should hate or <laughs> or like the Coens for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, here, here's my takeaway from it. Because so, okay. 
like this song is the song is in the trailer and it's um the rendition of fairly, fairly well. well which is great done by um oscar isaac and marcus mumford and and the significance of that is that marcus mumford does the part sung by lewin davis's old partner who uh i'm, I'm not gonna give away what happened to him um they broke up yeah let's just say that his partner's vocal part actually becomes a very significant part of the movie um Mar- marcus mumford is doing that part and i realize hey marcus mumford is actually a pretty good musician He's just a piss poor songwriter, and that's why I think why that is I hate part him. of it. I mean, I mean that. that sorry, Mark uh, Mumford and Sons fans, but the big issue with that band is that every song is the exact same. It has this same structure, the sort of it has we're the same like, gu- guitar rhythm too. Yeah. Oh my fucking god! Like I want to, I want to fucking <laughs> kill, I want to fucking kill people when that song comes on, or when any other song, fucking songs come on. No, they. Like there are folk bands that have a lot of dynamics to them. The fleet, you know, the fleet foxes, the fleet faxes, the Bon Ivers, arguably, um, depending on who you ask. You know, like there are these indie folk groups that are just better than Mumford and Sons. There are also probably some guy in a bar right now who's playing the greatest folk song of all time. Yeah, that will never find. But anyways, inside Lewin Davis, if you're into your really astringent, um, cyclical dark comedies about stasis then uh, burp watch it because it's great like i said i might watch it again yeah uh, totally worth it in a couple weeks when i'm at work (sighs) okay uh moving on uh another movie that's well a movie that is kind of scorsese-ish some people have been comparing it to goodfellas and scorsese which which it might be uh might be a blessing and a curse to this movie, um, David O. Russell's latest American Hustle, which is basically, uh, how do I say it? it it's it, it's about the Abscam scandal that happened in uh, the, the somewhere in the seventies. I don't know the exact year. Where basically fake Arab sheiks and Korean businessmen were bribing congressmen to. I'm not entirely sure what it was about, but it it, it was about it was about bribery and. People got arrested for it, and it was a big deal. And basically what David O. Russell does in this movie is turn that into kind of – into a film about a con job and about a con man played by Christian Bale, who I actually think is kind of hilarious in this. I mean he's not given a chance to be funny in a while. I mean he was plenty funny in American Psycho, and he was kind of funny in um, in The Fighter in some scenes. But mm-hmm. he's really funny in this movie, and um, – He's he's sort of caught him and Amy Adams, who plays his sort of mistress, because he is married to Jennifer, fucking uh, Jennifer Lawrence. What a lucky guy. <laughs> yeah, right. He's found out by an FBI agent played by Bradley Cooper, and basically he orders them to cooperate with him on this whole abscam thing. So um, you'll find out more particulars if you watch the movie. But uh, I I had a really good time with this. I thought I thought it was a I thought it was a lot of fun. I I think it drowns in its Goodfellas influence a little too often, like with the constant cameras, uh, camera pans and zooms and sh- zooms and such. And sometimes you know there are there are points in the film where there are like three or four competing narrators. Although that never really that never distracted me. I thought they pulled it off okay. 
Mm-hmm. But there are some points where, like, Christian Bale or sometimes Bradley Cooper would be narrating in, like, the exact same inflection as Ray Liotta in Goodfellas. And I, that distracted me a little bit. But uh, honestly, I thought this was I thought this was a lot of fun. I thought, I thought it moved at a really nice pace. Uh, I really enjoyed the writing, and I, I was never bored. And I thought the performances were uniformly great. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly, I think this... This is one of my favorite, easily one of my favorite Jennifer Lawrence performances. I think she just steals the whole thing when she's when she's on. So I had a great time, and uh, now let now now let's let TJ come in with his hate speech. I like this movie. I thought I thought it was solid. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm not even kidding. I I think in we're really the end, not, we're really not that far away from it. But I like it. No, I, I just have some big issues, but I can't get around the fact that I agree with you. And the movie is. Yeah an entertaining two hours and 15 minutes or so like it is an entertaining movie. i don't think it's a masterpiece like some people are saying it is but i the think the fact it's... that a one that i mean this movie could very well win the oscar and it's already won a bunch of awards the oscar for it, best picture yeah it, it's a possibility it's a more likable it's a, po- movie it's a possibility i wouldn't necessarily uh, agree with it but i wouldn't be unhappy with it right now the the, the bet makers are saying it's in a dead heat with gravity and 12 years a slave it might be the movie for people who don't want a special effects movie to win and the ones who don't want to sit through 12 Years a Slave. <laughs> Possibly. Which would be unfortunate. It's already had a little backlash because it's won. It beat 12 Years a Slave as the, uh, at the New York Film Critics Circle as the best film of the year. It also won screenplay and Jennifer Lawrence. And I think that that's damaging. I like awards because I'm a sports person. I like, I like after <laughs> movies are out. And all that, I like to pay attention to it just because that's entertaining to me. Like I don't really see the like the huge value in it, but it's just something that I get into for some reason, one reason or the other. But it's inarguably damaging to certain movies when it comes to critical backlash. The King's Speech, The Artist, Argo, all these movies I think are just fine, but they have that burden. Yeah, of being movies that beat superior movies or just movies that are fluff. Especially the artist out of those three, I would say, is the is the fluffiest of all. <laughs> so I, again, that's another movie I enjoy for the most part. The, the problem with with American Hustle, we're talking about the film now as opposed to any sort of outside force, which again doesn't matter, is that while I really enjoyed the performances, even though I would say I slightly prefer Cooper and Lawrence in Silver Linings, and I slightly prefer Bale and Adams in The Fighter. Well, I Christian, think well that, Christian Bale gives one of my favorite performances, probably my favorite performance he's ever given in The Fighter. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. and But I think here is, I think here it kind of creates a pretty iconic character, like, almost instantly. So I totally don't disagree. Now, I mean, everyone has their weak link and they're championing, the, even people who don't like the movie. I liked Lawrence because she stole the scenes, but I couldn't stand Amy Adams doing a fake British accent. Ooh, I really like Cooper because I, because I saw his character had this such and such, but I hated how Bale was ripping off De Niro. And I really just think yeah. that, to me, there isn't a weak part of the cast. If I had to pick the weakest, it's only Cooper because he's surrounded by so much talent, and Cooper yeah. is an ad- adequate actor. But he's not Christian Bale. He's not Jeremy Renner, who's charming in this movie. Jeremy Renner he's, is great. He's so loose and so funny in this. And I really like He's never him. been that before. I totally agree, and I think Jeremy Renner's really. He was, like the, I thought, he was like the stiffest SNL host I've ever seen in my life. 
And then there's Louis C.K., who is an underrated straight man performance. Um, I, 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 he has to be the, that guy for the for that part of the movie. To yeah, work. but there's a great running gag with him and ice fishing. That uh, yes, is which great. is literally my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> that gag, I thought it was hilarious. And then you have Bradley Cooper later on, and his best scene is sort of like drowned out with music because a Scorsese influence. But, you know, where he's mocking Louis C.K. Like, it's hilarious. It's sad because you know, his character is a jerk. Brad Cooper is a total scumbag, but you don't know that until, you know, one scene with Louis C.K., you know, later on. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's not even the one I'm mentioning. It's a different one. I know yeah, I, yeah I, I know you're talking about a different one, but there's another one with Louis C.K. where you're just like, okay, all sympathies with this character are completely lost. Yeah, I mean, he, and that's not I really mean, a flaw of the movie because you know, you, you'll find out when you see it. Oh yeah, I mean, for a cocaine movie, it's only one scene of cocaine in the entire movie. <laughs> like, well, yeah, it as feels compared, like as compared everyone... to as compared to the barrels of cocaine that's in uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> uh, but um, so I like the performances, and the movie's entertaining. So I, I can't say I dislike this movie. I think it's solid. Like, you just, you just don't think that it's great or that's a this wonderful masterpiece because i think in the end i think of the three last movies he's had it's his third best and i'm and i also am in the realm where silver lines playbook's overrated i enjoyed it the end is kind of silly the end undoes a lot of what that movie works towards which is which just kind of ruined the the the, the third act of silver lines actually ruins the whole movie for me to the point yeah. where the point where I actually like American Hustle way more than Silver Lining. Okay, and what, which I think is a totally valid point. I think my issue is that Silver Linings, up until that point, and is it was much fine. More, it, was, it was good. It's much more consistent. I feel like this movie has a lot of narrative threads that don't really satisfy me, especially the Adams Christian Bale Bradley Cooper love affair. Yeah, when that takes over the movie at. I think it. I think it really only happens at a couple points, so it really didn't hamper me too much. But when it becomes about their love triangle, then I I, I checked out and I stopped caring. But I mean, because it's so like pointless, and then like there yeah. people forgive each other by the end of the movie. Certain characters get with certain characters, and I'm just like, I don't feel like that was earned. And I think that yeah, I don't think I it's, understand oh, that. I don't think it's David O. Russell's uh, directing. I think it's a little bit his writing. He wanted a Lucy Goose movie. But I think it was a little too loose where he lost a little bit of control on the page. And then he direct like he direct I may be even wrong. Maybe it's a directing thing. Maybe on the page it actually makes a lot more sense. And then it's just sort of how it's communicated to us on the screen. The um, I think David O. Russell, we're, we're about to talk about another filmmaker I was going to say this about before I saw his most recent movie. But I think David O. Russell gets a little too much credit as a great modern filmmaker i think he's a bit overrated i i don't think any of his movies are clear i don't think he's made a masterpiece yet i'll say that the and, fighter might be his closest the fighter is one of my favorite yes. movies of that year at least in my top 10 no i mean and i would it's agree with that best, I think the, his best movie by a mile i think yes and i agree with that but i also just think that the other movies that get the sort of acclaim just don't warrant the acclaim and i okay. think that i think part of it has to do with that he's he he's sort of um, aping a lot of great filmmakers, Billy Wilder, um, a, a lot of a lot of the the screwball comedies of the black and white era, golden age of Hollywood, and of course Martin Scorsese. And I don't think, while his films do have his personality, 
like which I like. I like seeing yeah. his personality on the screen. I don't think he's mastered his own technique yet, which again, with this film, my big issue with it is that it's not satisfying. It's entertaining, but by the end I'm like that's it. All right. Like I wanted I wanted more and maybe I just had too high expectations. But it, it, this is a movie that I would totally recommend to people, just like I totally recommend Silver Lines to people all the time. My friends who aren't into art movies but want a really, really well-made <laughs> Hollywood movie. Like, yeah, we'll go see Silver Lines Playbook or Argo. You know, I know that these movies are crafted well, so I don't feel bad for suggesting them to people, and they don't tend to, to disappoint a lot of people. So I think that this is on the, uh, the the level of sort of Argo and Silver Linings. It's just a good Hollywood movie, but it isn't anything amazing, and I, I don't really feel bad for saying that. All right. Yeah, no, no, no. You, you shouldn't feel bad. I mean, I thought it was uh, – I thought it was – I, unlike you, I, I thought it was satisfying. It, it didn't. There were a couple things where it didn't do it for me, but I had a great time, and I think it most it mostly really works. Although, like, even though I really enjoyed this movie, and definitely in more than his last one, I, you know, because of the really obvious uh, Scorsese influence and really obvious callbacks to previous movies like this, with one surprise performance that I won't give away. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I chuckled. I'm not gonna lie, I chuckled. But you know, with all of all of that kind of baggage, it's I don't think David O. Russell is anywhere close to finding or to developing his own unique style or niche with these kinds of movies. Um, that that isn't to say that it hampers the movie, but I I'm just interested in what he does next and if that and if he he can be more distinct with his next movie. Uh, I'd agree with that. I mean, I'll most definitely see his next movie. The, I thought the funniest part, though, kind of like tells you everything you need to know about the movie is the opening title card. Yeah. Some of this stuff happened. Okay. Which, uh, we're, we're, spending way, we're spending way too long on talking about one movie, so let's move on to Nebraska. Which is the movie that I was uh, alluding to with a potentially overrated filmmaker. Nebraska is Alexander Payne's most recent movie. Um, he tends to it's make my, movies that leisurely... It's my favorite movie of his. Let, let, it, let. It's fighting for my favorite. Uh, I really love three of his movies, and one is probably a little controversial on this podcast, just because... What? It's kind of, a, kind of an old person's movie, I feel like. Is, uh, is The Descendants. I don't know. No, it's not... Uh, I mean, I, I like it just fine. I don't really love it, but... <clears throat> yeah. I, I really like The Descendants, though. I would argue that He's much better even in Sideways and here. He's made two really great movies that, unlike David O. Russell, are distinctly Alexander Payne films. Um, yeah. Like, of course, yeah. he has influences. Everyone has influences. But yeah, Alexander of Payne has found out a way to carve out his voice, his sort of comedic timing, his sort of um, adult humor. Like, it's, it, these are comedies for grown-ups, which I like a childish comedy. Don't get me wrong. I'll, I would watch This Is the End right now. But yeah. but, but it, it's it's a different style of comedy he uses here that you could take your parents to for the most part. Because, um, I don't know, maybe June Squibb might offend our grandmas. But, but for the most part, Nebraska has a heart that beats in it that Alexander Payne never relies on too heavily. It's about a, Will Forte's characters taking his dad Played by played very well with by the Cannes Award winning performance by Bruce Dern, and he's taking him to Nebraska because Bruce Dern has one of those scams. Uh, he got one of those scams in the mail. Say he won, he won a million dollars, 
And and this is a road movie, much like Sideways. Although and, it's not, it doesn't act like a road movie. And it's, that, oh no, yeah. A lot of it takes place in Lincoln, actually. You no, know, yeah, no. I mean, they have distinct places where they stop. Like for most of the movie, yeah, they're totally there. But it does it does have the sort of road movie feel that was in Sideways, and and, and yeah. also to a lesser extent about Schmidt. I still but have to see about Schmidt, actually. It's good. It's solid. I would say it's his yeah, fourth. Yeah, I would best deny movie. it. Um, um, uh, Nicholson's really good. I don't, he tends, good. Uh, when you said that the Descendants is an, when you said that the Descendants is an old people movie, I think Alexander Payne's made quite a few old people movies. No, he he has. I always say that because when I saw the Descendants, I was in a theater where the average age was sixty four. I would say. And I knew well, why they was, were there. Well, that was the same with this movie, actually. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, the reason I think old people saw, see the Descendants in particular is because Clooney take uh, brings out the old people and, and just stampedes old people. Oh love yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like my grandma thinks he's just the finest motherfucker alive. Well, I mean, he. For exact words, have, by the way. I, I I think your grandma has a good point there, but. <laughs> But back to Nebraska. This movie is gorgeously shot. Um, the black and white totally works here. We've had a lot of good black and white movies, I'm happy to say. And the reason why I don't feel like it's egregious here is because it totally makes that Nebraska landscape look so stark. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of the landscape shots of Texas in um, The Last Picture Show, uh, the Peter yeah. Bogdanovich. Um, and, but, and I think it works really well here, yeah. and it also adds a little bit of gravitas to the performance. I think it's a great way to capture Bruce Stern's really subtle performance of a, an elderly person with arguably dementia. Yeah, and he's he, he's kind of lost his capabilities. I mean, he he the the whole movie is talking about he just wants a new truck, he wants a new truck, he wants a new truck, but he can't and drive. He can't <laughs> drive, and, and there's a specific reason why he wants a new truck, but I, I won't give that away. Because it's, it's actually it's actually a really moving moment of the movie where I I almost teared up, actually. This is but, one of two movies that made my wife cry this year. Really? What was the other one? Uh, Captain Phillips, the last five minutes. Oh really? Ooh. Well. Um. Uh. Fuck! I lost my train of thought. Sorry, fuck, that's my fuck, bad. Fuck your wife. I'm terrible, terrible co terrible co-host. <laughs> um. Well, I was gonna say what, what you said about make uh, the. The cinematography making the landscape just really stark and kind of barren. I think that fits with. I think this is Alexander Payne's most honest movie, but also probably his most astringent and kind of. I don't want to say unkind, but he doesn't. He doesn't do the characters a whole lot of favors. Certain characters. Certain certain characters, but 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 there is a great deal of humanity to a lot of them. Even even June Squibb, who. I mean, she's a riot in this movie, but a lot of the time she really is just yelling at characters and just berating them at at, at every opportunity. But there are some. I mean, I mean, there's one scene at a there's one scene at a cemetery that I, I've already seen some people not like, but actually, I just think it's hilarious, where she basically just reads all of the family members that she knows, like, oh, she was such a bitch. <laughs> she was a whore. Uh, the, no, that's what she said. She was such a whore. Um, <laughs> but I think there's, a, I think there are some terrific moments of humanity that you get from her later on. And uh, even though, like I said, this movie is kind of like not 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 dark in the hmm, how do I say it? Not not dark in the really morose way, but 
fuck, I can't put my thoughts into words. It's just it's, it's similar but different from the Coen Brothers. Yeah, a little bit. It's not. Yeah, it's it's not an unkind movie, but it's no. not it's not particularly kind. But it does have a. I think it has just a terrifically well earned emotional ending. That's just one one of those great Alexander Payne endings that. You know, kind of similar to what you get in, like, Sideways. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I think the, this, this movie's terrific. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's one of my top 20 movies of the year. The And for such a great... In, in a weaker year, it would be in my top 10 or top 5, even. Yeah. But it, it's it might it might even sneak up there. Because it's a movie that also, like Inside Lewin Davis, it sticks with you. Because, I, I mean, of all the movies we're talking about, this is the one I've seen the longest, like, the biggest gap. Yet I remember it as freshly, or at least I think about it as freshly as almost any other movie we've talked about. Yeah, I kind of want to see it again, I, actually. Oh no, absolutely! Like, I mean, I'm the, I'm that person who buys way too many movies, but most of the movies we've talked about are, are going to be Blu-ray purchases eventually for me, and this is going to be a movie where I can just throw in at any point. Yeah. Um, with again, I, it's the black and white photography. It's the performances. I mean, I think Will Forte's solid. He, he plays his role well. And then, you know, June Squibb is hilarious, raunchy, but also has two really strong scenes, which, of course, still involve her sort of vulgarity, but still speak to the sort of heart that her character does have underneath all of that. Are you talking about, like, the family fight in the middle of the movie? That is, that's one, and the other one in the hospital. I think both yeah. those scenes were well done. It, um, well, and, the, fam- it, the family it, fight is probably... <laughs> Probably the most honest fight ever because they're not punching each other. They're just, they're just like, I, I, I can't do it in audio form, but they're just, uh, like, they fight like normal people would. They're just, like, fucking slapping and shit. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, oh, what's his name? What's the actor's name? Uh, the one who plays the cousin? Okay, no, the cousins are fighting with Will Forte's brother, who Bob is... Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, thank you. And that, Who's yeah, also that... pretty great in this. Yes, absolutely. I for some reason the trailers to me indicated he was going to be an antagonistic character, but I was yeah, very relieved yeah, to notice I, I, he played. I don't, I don't know why, but he's one of the more compassionate ones, which, which is kind of surprising. No, yeah, and and he does a really good job in the role. Um, the whole family is just so great, and the movie works in part because of the Payne direction, in yeah. part because. Alexander Payne found a screenplay that feels like one of his screenplays. Because this is the first movie he's done that he didn't write. He's yeah. a two-time Academy Award winner for screenwriting. And he decided to use someone else's yeah, screenplay. Yeah, first, first, first time screenwriter, Bob Nelson. Yeah, and Bob and his great screenplay. and But the, the, the true magic of this movie is from Bruce Dern. Um, yeah. Who, play, who plays this lead where it's, it's, a, it's between dementia. Shut up, cat. <laughs> Who's uh, between dementia and what is the? <laughs> I'm trying to focus, and my cat is literally on my laptop. Um, sorry about that. The what what works with Bruce Stern's performance is that he is between dementia and be, also being totally aware of what's going around him, just choosing to be disconnected from it. I mean, yeah. like. It's hard to tell sometimes how far his old age has really, like, affected him mentally. But then you notice that most of his old age has affected him emotionally because he's been walked all over in his entire life. And, like, that really is quite sad. But beautifully yeah. told in this movie. Like, 
this movie had one of the most satisfying endings of any movie I've seen this year. Like, yeah, the, it could have been so saccharine and bullshit and corny, but the way they pulled off in this movie is just very fulfilling. And yeah, I really it's just, appreciate it. It's just so well earned. And Bruce Dern gives this is my last point because um, we should move on. Bruce Dern, mm-hmm. uh, he his performance is is really passive. It's not <clears throat> you, you. You're constantly kind of wondering is he aware what's of what's going on or not. Like it, it could go either way, really. It's not a performance that will jump out at you and demand your attention. <clears throat> which you know is usually the kind it, that's kind of what June Squibb does and um yes that's the those are the kind of performances that usually win awards you know but he, he does the absolute opposite of showiness and i think that's really refreshing and it reminds it's, it's me it's something that only an actor of Bruce Dern's caliber could do th- this is going to be a weird comparison but it reminds me of Chiwetel Ejiofor a bit in 12 Years a Slave yeah. and that Yes, he has some scenes where he gets to, to choose some scenery. Really only one scene where he does it explicitly with the Eliza character when she continues to cry. But most of that movie is him just reacting and experiencing the world around him, uh, similar to the way Bruce Dern does. And I think both of them are two of the best performances of the year. Like, neither are really... like They're not Leonardo DiCaprio doing drugs, which I loved and is a great... Serving <laughs> performance of recognition but it's they're different characters and i think leo is serving his character well just the way that as you're saying that bruce stern serves his character well here i think it's a good point also really like the music in this movie even though some of it's not original score it's like used for other things but i thought it was really well used especially the trailer music yeah i had no I like- idea um <laughs> I was just looking on Wikipedia. I didn't know that Bruce Dern was Lauren, Laura Dern's father. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, if you've ever seen um, – have you ever seen Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore? No, actually. Have you ever seen Wild at Heart? Uh, yeah, long, long ago. So the mom, Laura Dern's mom in that movie is her real-life mom. Oh, cool. Who is Bruce Dern's ex-wife. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Nebraska is great. Moving on. Um, You've been very positive today. Yeah. Uh, There are a couple movies that we both saw. We don't don't need to talk about them a whole lot, especially not – we don't need to have 10-minute conversations about each of them. The Hobbit Desolation of Smog, do we need to explain the plot? I mean, if you're not in, you're out. I mean, the only people that that saw this movie that didn't – that didn't know what was going on were probably taking people that did know what was going on. If, and, the only, and the only people who tend to dislike this movie, ardently dislike it, are the ones who are not already invested in Middle Earth, which makes sense. Well, no, that's not true. I've, I've, I've heard a few people that legitimately love the Lord of the Rings movies and the books. That, okay. That don't, that don't like this well, movie. And I'm, well, <clears throat> I'm, 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 and like I was, I, I was forgiving of the first Hobbit movie, but now that the more I look back on it, the more I'm closer to honestly disliking it because it. I don't know. I really, I really felt just long story short. It felt did more of a disservice to its source source material than anything else. But this one I actually felt is a is a big improvement, and it really has a it really has a sense a, a good pacing and a good sense of adventure that the first movie so did not for the most part. Yeah, I thought I thought it was that was a fun, I thought it was a fun time. Uh, it's not didn't wasn't anything that'll shake up my shake up my world or anything, but. 
it, it, was, it was fun, and I'm kind of weary about the next one because I did so much in this one, so the next one they're might gonna, just be... They're going to expand out that, that War of the Five Armies. Um, yeah, I guess. So. I don't know. But, um, which, which they did in the Two Towers because... I mean, I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings movies. It's one of my, like, for for some people, it's Star Wars. That's like the sci-fi fantasy series that they nerd over. Like, and I like Star Wars. It's fine. But I think my series of like that I could just put on at any moment, and even flaws and all, just completely adore is the original Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I think that I agree with you. I was too nice with the first Hobbit movie, though I still, there are scenes in it that elevate it past crap for me, and that's the scene with Gollum in the first Hobbit movie. Yeah, it's and the best scene in the movie. But oh, yeah, it's, it, it's probably still the best scene in the in both movies, but in Martin Freeman's performance generally, I think he fits the bill perfectly. I, I really like him as as Bilbo. Um, is my favorite performance of the movies so far, and, and of course, um, Gollum. But, this movie is just your. I think you just hit it on the head. It's just more consistent. It's paced better. It's fun. Like, like the first movie has a little bit of fan service, but you spend 25, 30 minutes. It felt like, probably exaggerating. Like people exaggerate the sex scenes in Blue is the Warmest Color, but it felt that long. With the dwarf singing. <laughs> Probably the one time Hobbit. anyone's ever compared the Hobbit to Blue is the Warmest Color. Dwarf singing reminds me of lesbian sex. Um, no. Um, but. Yeah, the next movie we should see Dwarf Scissoring. Yes, that, that would be either disturbing or hilarious. Can't tell which one. Um, but it, it was too long. This movie didn't feel two hours and 45 minutes, as opposed to the first one, which felt every... Felt way movie. too long. Yeah. you can, And you can even say, I mean, you can even say that as a trilogy, that these films are, as a whole are, are stretching a little book with appendix material. I mean, a lot of this is in the appendices for Return of the King. But they are stretching them thin. But I will say that even though this movie, uh, The Desolation of Schmaug, which I always thought was smog and I felt terrible that I've been saying it wrong, I guess. But I feel like even though this one you could say is still stretched thin, that there's a few scenes in here that are just a blast. Yeah. And, and the, the barrel scene is... Is great. Is, is great choreography. Uh, action choreography like it's just it reminded me of the best parts of Tintin which is a I'm, which is a movie I'm okay with but like some of those action scenes in that movie were really fun I fell asleep during Tintin yeah it, it, it's not a great movie but there are a couple chase sequences that were fun and only fun because I think Spielberg and Jackson both have something similar and they both co-worked on Tintin is that they're both visual geniuses to us when it comes to action scenes is that they do a really good job of putting you in the scene where you understand what's going on and you get to see even when it gets ridiculous like how well the choreography is i mean you know i mean you could look back at raiders of the lost dark to see how well spielberg is with it but i think peter jackson also has a really good eye for visual action propulsive action and that barrel scene is is great it's one of my favorite action scenes of the year and all the stuff at the end with the dragon um i think is really exciting and totally made that movie a pleasurable experience. It's not a great movie. It's merely solid. But I cannot say I did not enjoy it myself. All right. Then we also saw Anchorman, which... Uh, I mean, I laughed a lot. It's fairly consistently funny. 
but it's just like if you're gonna make a comedy that's like this where there's essentially no plot it's really just joke 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 and there have been very successful comedies that are like that maybe like the first anchorman if you're gonna do that if you're gonna do that then you got to be economical about it and if you're exceeding 80 some minutes then you're doing it wrong or How 90, long was the first not, Anchorman? 90 at most. I don't know. It couldn't be longer than 90. But this is almost two hours. And like, yeah, like, I, like I was down for it for a while, but it just got to just got to a point where it's just like, even at the end, where it's just cameo after cameo after cameo. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like there's no jokes anymore. It's like I'm just w- kind of waiting for it to end. Like, I'll definitely catch it if it's on cable, but I. Can't say I ever would sit through it in a theater again because it was just exhausting. Um, yeah, the first Anchorman was 94 minutes, and I agree that the length is an issue here. I think that for me, I had the opposite response where some of the er- the very early stuff I totally dug, and that last half hour from pretty much we'll just say blindness on, I thought was consistently hilarious for me, where I was laughing a lot more than I was for that second act that part of the movie was where a lot of the race jokes were that were so uncomfortable my audience was literally going oh my god did he just say that like someone yelled that from the background they weren't that shocking <laughs> come on uh, yeah no you I gotta be shocked you, you gotta be shocked by nothing if you're shocked by those yeah no i mean i don't disagree but I think that while those jokes got the biggest reaction from my audience, I think that that's where the film is at its weakest, is that forced love story. And all the that, se- that entire section of the movie just wasn't as hilarious to me as the first half hour and the last 45 minutes half hour. Yeah. Like, for, like I think if you cut some of the stuff in the middle, the movie would have been more economical and paced better. And I will say, I, I left laughing. I thought that was funny. Um, I, I, it's nowhere near as good as the first Anchorman, but I didn't think the first Anchorman was all that great until I saw the second third time. I'm like, I have no idea how much I like this movie in a few years. But it was an entertaining sit-through, albeit flawed, like you said. Yeah. But I will say, my opinion of it did diminish a little bit after I saw The Wolf of Wall Street and noticed that I was laughing more consistently. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and, it's, a, it's, it's more consistently funny than... Than Anchorman, which is is surprising. Okay, let's just let's just let's just move on. We talked enough about it. Um, uh-huh. Now I'm getting greedy because I'm going to talk about three movies that I've seen. I'm going to go through two of them really quickly. Elaborate a little bit more on the last one, but I don't want to go through too much. Um, uh-huh. I saw two Disney movies. And I'll start with the bad one. Um, well, it's not <laughs> it's not bad. It's merely I don't, I don't even want to say middling. There's stuff I like about it, the stuff I don't. I'm talking about Saving Mr. Banks, which is basically the story of uh, how Walt Disney tried to convince um, P.L. Travers to uh, adapt Mary Poppins, to, to let him adapt Mary Poppins into a movie, which was very, you know, very famous movie, starred, uh, of course, Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, and probably the worst British accent in movie history, but. Eh. Still fun. The problem with this movie is, it is totally willing and just just perfectly fine 
with showing like the worst flaws of P.L. Travers. It's just fine with showing her as the most difficult, um, kind of a bitch, honestly, throughout most of the movie. That's legitimately how they want to portray her, I think. But they would not dare put a single blemish on Walt Disney or the Sherman Brothers or anyone else that works for Disney. And so at the beginning of the movie, I was really annoyed by j- j- by the portrayal of uh, P.L. Travers. The way that she's portrayed really turned me off. Uh, Walt, um, Tom Hanks is just Tom Hanks with a mustache. There's never a single point where he becomes a different person who becomes Walt Disney. Um, so he's much better than Captain Phillips, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, B.J. Novak and Jason Schwartzman as the Sherman brothers are fine um i they're they kind of uh, jason schwartzman has this face where he's just smiling all the time and he almost looks like he almost looks like one of those uh you know door-to-door mormon dudes that that try to get you into his church i mean (laughs) he he just has that face and um it's like oh everyone's all happy-go-lucky and everything And, and 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 then they they flash they flash back to P.L. Travers' childhood, where uh, her dad, played by Colin Farrell, was an alcoholic, and Colin Farrell gives a pretty good performance. If it, it's a little overblown, but I've um, heard mixed but, things. It's, yeah. I'm interested that they said it was good. It's a little act. People... It's a little actory, but it, it's ah. pretty. It, it's pretty good. But the flashback structure is so predictable. You know exactly when they're going to flashback and forward. Until you don't. There are a couple points where it's just super clunky and just. Just need, needed some really bad, really strict editing. So this movie really just annoyed me for part of it. But then there's a, then there's a part in the middle where I'm actually I I found myself charmed a little bit by the stuff happening in the '50s and actually getting emotionally involved in the past stuff with with, with the alcoholic dad or whatever. I I found myself getting emotionally involved with that. And then in the present, I, I kind of feel like they're giving P.L. Travers a little bit more of another dimension it just starts working a little bit for better for me and there's there's just really charming sequence when they're playing um let's go fly a kite the sherman brothers are playing let's go fly a kite for pl travers as she's finally warming up to them and they're all singing the song and it sounds super corny and it is but it was a genuinely charming moment and then um uh, she and then pl travers gets mad for another reason and then takes away the rights and goes back to england which you know, didn't actually happen, and Walt, and then, then, then there's another scene that totally ruins the movie for me again, where Walt Disney goes to England, also didn't happen, to get, um, to get P.L. Travers to come back, and basically tells her what her life story means, and why Disney is, why Disney is going to tell the story right this time, that, that's how, well, that's why I took away from it. And, and then, of course, when they're screening, <clears throat> of course, when she goes to the premiere of the of the movie, she's crying through the whole thing, and she just loved it. And the thing is, I don't have a problem with the fact that this that this movie is total horseshit as far as facts go. I I really I truly don't care. I've never read the Mary Poppins books. I don't really have a position on that. Um, and 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 Hollywood is filled with dozens of biopics that are absolute. Just total bunk, and I. So to criticize it just for that, I don't. I I wouldn't go with that. But 
where my problems lie is just the characterization is like so one-sided for almost everyone involved uh, that ultimately led to ultimately led to kind of a condescending movie as far as I'm concerned. A few scenes work pretty well, like I said, and uh, also <clears throat> uh, Paul Giamatti is really, really nice as um, as uh, her chauffeur that Disney hires to drive her around. And they have a they have a really they have a really great scene where they both talk about, or Paul Giamatti talks about his family and his daughters or whatever. And they, I can't remember what what the conversation was about, but I remember it was one of those things where, in the hands of less capable actors, it could have been just super sappy and super annoying. But mm-hmm. they both pull it off, and it was one of the moments that really worked for me. Uh, but ultimately, I was I was really torn on saving Mr. Banks. Uh, part of it was condescension, part of it was kind of charming and kind of emotionally fruitful. But yeah, I mostly just forgot about it, which is sad. And Frozen, which is great, and you have to you you, you have to like Disney. You have to like Disney musicals to like this movie. That is a prerequisite. I like Disney musicals. I'm a musical guy. I, I just am. I come from a musical theater background, and that definitely helps. But I think it's legit, legitimately great. The songs are the songs are fantastic. They were done by uh, Andrew Lopez, I think is his name, and he did the music for the Book of Mormon and Ad, Avenue Q and um, the really great Winnie the Pooh movie that came out a couple years ago. I, I just had a really great time with this movie, and and yeah, I think it's great, and people should watch it. And uh, the last movie I'm going to be talking about is The Past, and uh, The Past, but directed by um, Iranian director Oscar Farhadi. <sighs> okay, Berenice Bejo is the lead, and because um, <clears throat> explaining the plot of The Past is really is a little difficult because it's a really it's an extremely complicated family drama. Oscar Farhadi has made some really terrific movies. Um, a Separation is. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, well, a separation is his best movie and by far his most well known. And about Ellie is just really fantastic as well. I just got Fireworks Wednesday, his movie before that, um, from Amazon. I have the DVD here, and I'm gonna watch it in a couple days. The past is really great. It's about it's about an Iranian man named Ahmad. Uh, after four years, because he's coming back to France. To finalize his divorce proceedings with Berenice Beho, they've been separated for four years. Berenice Beho plays Marie. Marie is with uh, a man named Samir, who's Tahar Rahim is the actor's name. So Marie is with Samir, but while that, this is where it gets complicated. Samir uh, has a wife that is currently in a coma. So it, it's complicated from every side. Marie's daughter, played by an actress named Pauline Burlett, is uh, is angry at Marie for being with this guy, and, uh, and for she's really kind of the breaking point of this movie because a lot of the drama revolves around stuff that she did, and in a lot of Oscar Farhadi's movies, I really think he's really one of the great directors today in working about working with family dramas and a drama is about how families react to conflict and react to crises and how they can turn against each other um about ellie is all about that a separation is also all about that and the past is also about that but it's complicated because the crisis occur is really a, a lot about 
a lot about Samir's wife and his how she got into a coma. So the crisis occurred before the, before the events of the film. And uh, it also has kind of a, a slightly of a mystery element, which is kind of in line with about Ellie, but about Ellie is more it's more of a mystery. It's a little bit hard to talk about the past because it's so spoilery, kind of. But the film, I think, really examines guilt and complicity in events that have already transpired. Should you own up to something like that or should you just forget about it because it's in the past? And some characters do decide to own up to these while some stay in denial. And this could easily be criticized as a movie that is about nothing or nothing happens because a lot like Nebraska and a lot like Inside Lewin Davis, it's a movie about stasis and how some characters stay in a stasis. And a lot of characters are in between certain points in their lives and they don't know where to go. And they don't they kind of want to stay in that in-between space. There's this recurring motif in the movie that I didn't notice until I watched it for a second time. There's this motif of a scene occurs in one room and then a character walks out of the room, walks down the hallway, and then stops and then walks back and does one more thing and or says one more thing to the character. And that's very representative of this being of this like stuck in between uh, sort of mental space that these characters are in. Um, you know, Berenice Beho and Samir are stuck in between their previous relationships. Um, Berenice Beho's previous relationship being Ahmad and Samir's previous relationship being his wife that's in a coma and sort of their current one together. The movie really takes its time and it doesn't rush because it, it, it doesn't rush anything because to do so would be disrespectful to the character's and their internal struggles, and those are always paramount. It's a movie where you always need to be, uh, you know, where second viewings are very helpful. While knowing the events that are coming, you can examine what the characters might be thinking, you know, where their allegiances might be at a certain point. It's it's a complicated movie, but I think it's a really great one. It's not as great as A Separation, which I think is a probably a masterpiece, and it's also not as not as great as about Ellie, which may as well be a masterpiece, if not being very close to one. But it is is very great, and it's definitely a movie that uh, a movie that people need to see. Uh, Bernice Bejo also won the Cannes Award for Best Actor. Thanks. So. Yeah, I can't I can't wait to see it. It's it's um comes out here in February uh, on Valentine's Day, so that's, I won't oh, be able really? to see it. Yeah, I won't be able to see it in time for our list, but. I will retroactively add it if I find it as great. Because as we talked about in our top 10 of the decade so far, so I totally 100% am in sync with you for a separation. I think it's a great film. And I'm, I'm really excited to see this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to start. We're starting a new segment called, well, basically a segment for DVD recommendations and DVD picks. These could be DVDs that are coming out um, in the week of the podcast recording, or it could just. Or it could be DVDs somehow related to the movies that we're talking about, or they could just be random picks, just whatever the fuck we want. Um, since I just talked for like about ten minutes, how about you go first if you got a pick? All right, I ended up. Um, I saw a lot of good movies this month on DVD, and um, I got this one via Netflix. Um, they sent it to me, and it was a great 
watch. It was the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, um, which is based on the Edward Albee uh, play and is a film made in 1966, was nominated in every category of the Oscars that it was eligible for, which has only been done a few times, and is a really, really great film. Um, it's Mike Nichols' first film. His second would be The Graduate. came out the following year, which she won Best Director for. And th- this is the first time where I've seen Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton where I finally got why they were considered <laughs> so great for their time because they are truly amazing in this film it's shot in black and white um which was a, a choice as opposed to a necessity because 66 was totally rife with color film but the 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 weird angles of this film the the it totally makes it worthy of being a film sometimes you have a great play that works as a play but it doesn't make a great film uh, what a lot of what I read about August Osage County has been saying that, um, but this is a film that deserves to be a film, and it's like only a cast of four actors, but they all do a great job here. And um, as, as Sandy Dennis and, and George Siegel, um, pretty much it's it, the the entire conceit of the film is about relationships and how damaging they can be to one another. And if you want the plot. Um, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor are married. They are wasted, and they continue to get more wasted as the movie comes over, and they have some friends come over who also get wasted. And they pretty much are just getting wasted and yelling at each other throughout the entire film. And it, that may sound unappealing, but it's truly... It's not only entertaining, but it is very insightful. And I've gone back and, and read the play, too, and it's pretty much word for word. It's I really recommend it. All right, and my DVD pick is related to the movie I just talked about. I'm going to recommend About Ellie because um, to recommend a separation would be a little bit... Well, there are a lot of people that still haven't seen a separation just because, you know, it's in a foreign language or whatever. Um, But it's definitely more well-known and more acclaimed. About Ellie is nearly as great. It's devastating. It's It's deeply sad. It's a deeply sad movie. And... It's about a few families that go on uh, a trip to sort of this uh, beachside, beachside villa place. One one of them brings on their kid, their child's teacher named Ellie, and that's really all I can say because everything after that is kind of a spoiler. I, I guess Oscar Farhadi kind of makes movies like that, um, where you know tragedies or just some kind of conflict occurs that you can't really talk about unless you see the movie um about ellie is it's just terrific and i i'm sure if i watch it again all my opinion will only rise on it it is just truly fantastic yeah that's about all i have to say about it um so i i guess we're done <clears throat> i guess we're done and stuff coming up next weekend we might do the favorite albums of the year podcast i'm really not sure right now we were gonna do it today but some people couldn't make it so i don't know we'll see we'll see well favorite albums of the year uh, that's not technically an abandoned theater podcast but it's for speakers and screens um <clears throat> what we will do hopefully uh, are you comfortable with doing it after after her yeah um i want to see her and the great beauty and then i'll feel confident in a list i'm going to try to also catch 
act of killing on DVD, enough said on DVD, Spectacular Now on DVD, Don John, they're all coming out in the next few weeks, so I'm going to try to catch those as well. Okay, well, I, I, I want to do it in the middle of January, if we could. Okay, so, um, her, her um, I get her at the, on the 10th of January, I think. I do as well. Yeah, okay, so we'll we'll know then. And Danny might join us, and he's been really looking forward to her, too. And the next, whenever it comes, the next podcast from us will be our top ten favorite movies of 2013. <laughs> yeah, look out for that. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.